Hey there, thank you so much for being here for a special simulcast edition of the Big Time Talker podcast, the Blog Talk Radio Network, Apple, iTunes. Uh, you can download it at Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. And we're also streaming, courtesy of Zoom into Books and our friends at Headline Books. Thanks to Kathy and Belinda Ashley, the whole team there. As we talk with former Mouseketeer and current talent coach, Jennifer McGill. And uh, Jennifer joins us from her palatial Nashville uh, studio where she now teaches uh, young artists and, and I guess artists of any age how to uh, successfully launch into the entertainment business. Jennifer, thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you very much for having me. And you you started when you were, what, six or seven years old? Well, I signed my first professional contract when I was 10 years old with the, with Disney. I've been on stage probably since preschool. <laughs> Do you remember, uh, you grew up in Texas, right? Yes. Do you remember the first time you were actually on a stage? I absolutely do. I was in preschool. Uh, my my church had a little uh, kinder craft is what it was called. And the teachers learned that I had memorized the children's version of the Wizard of Oz book. And I recited it to the class. And they decided to have a little production where I got to be Dorothy. And my Toto was a hand puppet that was a koala. And I wore my mother's very large silver shoes with um, elastic around the heels. So I just kind of flip-flopped around the stage and clicked my heels three times. And I don't even remember if I sang, but I absolutely was the star of the show in preschool in front of an audience and everything. <laughs> so, so sort of a destiny thing for you. And Jennifer McGill is our guest today. You can find her at jennifermcgill.com. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by by people like you that, that sort of know all along what they're going to do with their life. And, and it is sort of a predestiny thing, but did any of that come from your parents? Did they have any sort of entertainment or showbiz in their backgrounds? My mother had a minor in music and she had been in a pageant in college. Okay. Um, was a, a local small town vo vocal coach and was my first vocal coach. Um, so, you know, my family was very musical, but we absolutely were not career strategists. We had no idea past doing talent contests, what the business was like or how to, you know, get famous or build a career for a child. It was really unheard of at that time right. for some, um, you know, in, in, in little Denison, Texas, you know, it wasn't. There was no plan for that. There was no social media. I think we had to order away for eight tracks or cassette tapes for the right key for my songs. And all of that pageant season of my life started because I saw Miss Texas pageant and I just wanted a crown and they didn't have them at Walmart at the time. There were no right crown shops anywhere, right? And so you had to actually go win it like a soccer trophy. You just had to go <laughs> to work and get it done. And that's what I did for about three years. And um, so really, we, we fell into the business, um, my mother really being um, um, the, the central facilitator of anything that I wanted to do. I drove the dream. I wanted to be on stage and I wanted to sing all the big notes. And she tried her best to figure out how to help me to do that. She sewed my costumes. She rehearsed with me. And um, the last competition I did when I was 10 years old, a children's agent was one of the judges and on a handshake. She represented me, and the next thing I know, I'm auditioning for the new Mickey Mouse Club. 
So there was no, there was no strategy. So I agree. It, it very well may have been a, a destiny thing for sure. Your brothers and sisters? I do. I, the short answer is I grew up with my younger brother, Justin, okay. and my dad has two older daughters or two. I have two older sisters with my dad, but I am half adopted. And so I actually have um, multiple brothers and sisters that I've gotten to meet uh, when I was a little older. Any of them uh, in the family business? No, like and my my biological father was tone deaf. I mean, it's like nobody <laughs> any inclination. You know, nobody else. My my little brother. I have to take that back. My little brother, he is working on uh, composing. He he is you know getting higher education through that. He is in multiple acapella and choral groups. He does shows. He has a beautiful baritone voice. He knows more about music theory than I do. Um, I love his voice. Our whole, our whole little family sang in church and did the youth musicals and the choirs and the cantatas. We are musical, but nobody made a career out of it except for me. I do have a cousin. I, you know, here we go again. Yeah. Sean Groves. See, it all pops out of my... So Sean Groves is a successful Christian artist uh, who now... Uh, as far as what I remember, he speaks with Compassion International. Um, he gloriously talented guy. And um, I loved his album as well. I think his biggest song was Welcome Home. And through him, I actually got to meet Katy Perry back when she was singing, you know, in the Christian genre on tour. And I got to have a little conversation with a bright eyed 20 year old Katy Perry, or it's Katie Hudson, talking about her life and what she'd love to do with music. So, She's you know, not okay. I, She's done fine. She's done fine. So yes, you know, my family's very musical, but I think I was the first one to start into it. And, and I believe I've, I'm the one who's centered on continuing specifically into music training, music production, etc. So seven, eight, nine years old, you're in these, these kids pageants, which, you know, I, I lived a long time in the South and that's just a normal thing in the South. Whereas in about 30 other States in the country, they think there's something seriously wrong with little kids being in pageants. Now, you can look at this in the rearview mirror, and I wonder what your thoughts are about little kids doing pageants like that. Absolutely. You know, and it's because I had a good experience that right. I don't have a, a, a big a big rain cloud over the idea of a pageant because for me, they were my sport. You know, when I mentioned soccer trophy, this was my soccer. This was my yeah. softball. You know, I would, I would go in with a goal. I wanted the crown. I wasn't interested in psychological warfare or if I was skinnier than someone else or who was doing what. I just wanted to win the talent portion. I just wanted that crown and that trophy. And I was curious if people would like my pictures or not or the interview portion. I was curious to see if I would place. And I knew for sure that I wasn't going to be like number one poser or walker or you know, shoulder to shoulder, like prettiest dress. I, I just wasn't really interested <laughs> or had any kind of inclination that I was going to go win a beauty pageant. I wanted to sing the loudest and the highest notes and win. That was where my sport was. I was a vocal gladiator. So really I was maybe in the wrong section of competition, uh, but, but really besides star search, there wasn't anything that was exactly what I'd been looking for at the time. I mean, now we have American Idol, we have The Voice and America's Got Talent. There's so many other ways you can compete with just talent, really. Right. Um, but that was that was really kind of like our karaoke night, me and my mom. 
she'd sew the costumes, we'd figure out a song, we'd do the hand motions that now I'm famous for from the Mickey Mouse Club because the choreographer was gracious enough in the end to let me keep all my little hand motions of wax on, wax off, etc. And I, you know, I just, I saw it as my sport. Um, and I remember when I left the stage, I left that issue. I wasn't um, mad or, or um, not confident about how I presented. I know that I did the best that I could. I bloodied the stage and then I left, you know, I was like, thank you everyone. And I went home and I would, I would put my crown on and get a plastic toy sword and fight the trees in the forests where I lived. I, I mean, I just, I just returned to being a normal outside running barefoot down the gravel road kid. And then we'd do it all again another weekend. Jennifer McGill is our guest. You may know her from her stint on the uh, New Mickey Mouse Club or as a talent coach that works with the uh, talent all over the world with PCG International. Um, you talked about your mom. And yes. that's, that's another sort of thing that, that folks that are not in the entertainment business hear a lot is the horror of the stage mom. The momager. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I know years ago, um, I worked with uh, Debbie Gibson a little bit and, and met Diane, who was a momager. Um, and they had a, a very close relationship. And then, of course, you hear all the horror stories. Now that you help train talent and you look back on the momager, um, did she push too much? Did she facilitate your dreams? Was there a blurring of the lines? Tell me about it. So, you know, I, I, I had the pleasure of knowing my mother for 24 years and I had barely scratched the surface of the questions or the conversations I would have wanted to have with her about her perspective on growing up with all of this. I, what I know now thinking back is that in the beginning, she was just a facilitator. She is a teacher at heart, just like my father is a teacher at heart. I am a teacher at heart. You know, my, my brother works for a library. I mean, we are, we are educators. We, we thrive in trying to help someone else out. And um, all she, I believe, wanted to do was be a part of what her daughter loved and to pursue something with me, not only to see me thrive, but because she knew how to help. She, she knew that, that side. You know, a lot of parents that approach us now with talented musical children don't know anything about what singing is or what hand motions are or, or how to dress someone or right. prep someone stage performance. But she understood that world enough where she was happy to help. And we spoke that language together. Like I said, we fell into the new Mickey Mouse Club, which you can say is my big break. That was that was what put me on the map as far as becoming a, D a Disney legacy and something that I put into that keeps you know going on and on. That was the first big thing that I did. Um, and I think that we were all so overwhelmed. It was very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, like, sign away, Charlie, we got nothing to lose. Like, we don't know what we're doing, but this is exciting. And Disney wants you to be on their show. So let's, let's try it. And if nothing else, she was 100%. We moved our family from Texas to Orlando. Right. Uh, Joe uh, officially started filming season one. And this was like 1990, maybe 89. So um, we built a life together as a family. And so she did, the whole family made a lot of sacrifices so that we could, in the end, be together and be more of a family unit. 
in ways that a lot of the other Mouseketeers couldn't be. Um, but I don't think she ever knew how to be a momager. We, we didn't know enough about the business. So I think where I, where I remember her gushing about me and talking about me all the time and talking about what I've accomplished in my accolades, I think it was just pure giddiness, you know, and if, and if there's some voyeurism in that, I'll, I'll allow it because she deserved every bit of joy that she got from watching me do what I love doing. And I certainly loved my job and she certainly loved me. Uh, so I, I think as, as usual, I am an exception to the rule of how these things normally play out. I know that a lot of times families um, maybe think that they could turn their child's uh, love for something into a business. I think right. it's easier, it's easier to look into that as a, as a business choice nowadays with all the digital accessibility that we have to everyone versus in my time. And I have met a lot of momagers. Um, I remember in even the pageant world, see, my grandmothers were very sweet and sort of demure and quiet and loving. But there was this one grandmother working with her grandchild in a pageant, roughly brushing her hair and barking her, barking at her orders. And I was like, what is that creature? Mom, right. who, what is that all about? That's a grandmother? You know, I, I just didn't understand why moms or dads would want to push a child into something that they didn't want to do. But I know that that happens. And I think because of how I know it can be, my goal is just to encourage families to maybe take a step back if that's starting to become too complicated in a family, because you have to have the right team and you have to have the right collaborators with you, not just yes men and women. And sometimes a mom and dad are too close. We all know the idea of where we have something we want to tell our, our son or daughter, or you have a parent who wants to tell something to their son or daughter, but it comes out and it's heard way better from someone outside of the family. And I think a lot of the times that that is a necessary evaluation that a lot of parents struggle with taking that step back and maybe making changes for the, for the betterment of their whole family, as, as well as their kid who still may love what they're doing, but maybe needs an adjustment. And, and I can tell you that there's a benefit from having that adjustment, the way that my mother had, had us all move to Orlando. You know, we all agreed to go. That was a sacrifice that was worth it because we were a stronger family because of that change. So you were, you said 10 years old when you signed that contract. So that would be fourth grade, probably. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> it, okay. I was a young, I was a, a young person in each grade. So I want to say it was fifth grade where I, I didn't show up. I think, yeah, I want to say it was fifth grade for me. I don't know. I can't remember. I know I was in fifth grade in Texas and it was sixth grade that I missed most of. Because you were on set. Yeah, not sure. School building, right. We were on location tutored. So uh, the whole family moves to Orlando. Do, um, <clears throat> do siblings get jealous? Do mom and dad have a tough time? not giving you all the focus and making sure they're included. What is that family dynamic like? I know that, that we, we struggled, we as in a family, struggled to balance out Justin's life and his achievements. Because Justin is a super smart guy. And I remember he was in a geography bee. He was in a spelling bee. Like super smart, wonderful young boy. Um, and it is easy when you're looking at 
geography bees and spelling bees and your scholastic efforts and your love for languages and composing. But then your sister's on the new Mickey Mouse Club. Right. I mean, it's so difficult when people want to converse about your family or when you're trying to tell people what's going on. It's easy kind of a, of a fact to overshadow. But I remember us as a family not wanting to belittle or minimize anything that Justin did. However, I'm sure that was probably a question on his little hearts, you know, gosh, you know, is what I'm doing enough. And, you know, he's not the only one there, there, there is home video footage of in the very beginning when the brothers and sisters um, would come to school with the Mouseketeers. In the beginning, we were taught to all be a family. And so I really appreciate that the company in the very first stages of development with the show had the mothers and the fathers, they gave them access to seeing us rehearse things and and all of the brothers and sisters were with us between schools and picnics and um on the set they were able to watch and be a part of it and um as a side note the writers of the new mickey mouse club loved my brother and for a second he actually got his own writing desk in the office building the bungalow with his little name on a tag and i actually think because that would you know i think eventually maybe there were some rumblings about favoritism <laughs> um that that got that got you know probably deconstructed and you know my brother actually also got a segment on the new mickey mouse club called always justin where they commended him for spending um every day in the audience in the tapings up to that point in the show's life of tapings. And they gave him a life-size cardboard cutout of him sitting Indian style so that he could put it in the audience if he ever missed a show. So he was actually really lifted up and supported um, in the beginning as a little brother and as, you know, a great human. So again, one of the exceptions uh, to maybe what everyone else was experiencing, like we, we really, I believe the show really tried to make us all feel like a family. And I have wonderful memories of how they specifically tried with my brother. How many kids, do you have any idea how many kids auditioned or were in the mix for that uh, whole deal? I know that there were tens of thousands, wow. but there were, yeah. there. And, and remember, this was all through agencies or cattle calls and videotapes. Right. Um, and I, I don't know. See, when I first started the audition process, it was for a movie called Why Because We Like You. And it was going to be about the original Mouseketeers. And I got that job in 1988. I was going to play Doreen. But the writer's strike in LA was doing whatever it was doing. And so the movie got canceled. And they, the same auditioner, uh, the same casting director, Matt Casella, was also casting the TV series uh, for Orlando, Florida. And he basically said, okay, well, the ones that I chose for this movie, I wanna bring them into the final audition for the show. And so I had like two auditions, two and a half auditions. Um, and then I was on the show. So I skipped a, a lot of, I, I would say the experience of having to submit a lot of videotapes and stand in line. Um, I, I honestly don't think I would have even known about the show. Right. Uh, we didn't have the Disney channel. You know, we, we just were not connected, to, like I said, to any kind of big strategy, big goal of how to get me famous, um, how to get me to a, a big city that produced shows. We had no idea. So, um, but what I gather now, because I have a few friends who have auditioned, 
and you hear all the stories, you know, when you're meeting your fans and, you know, people would talk about, oh my gosh, I stood in line all day and I made it through round two and la la la. And then you hear the stories, how the auditions would get harder and harder as the core group got older and more experienced on the show. So it was a constant obstacle course, I would say. And I, I marvel all the time how, you know, this little blonde hair, blue eyed girl was the one of those that they chose out of all of the ones, all, all the Miss Americanas, you know, that probably auditioned in 1988 for that role. I, I really marvel that, that he chose me, you know, uh, and I'm very grateful because I, I really thrived on that show and, and I'm still in the business today trying to help other young people thrive in their versions of, of their shows like that too. So, you know, being at Disney, you mentioned earlier, sort of a legacy cast member, um, that stays with you for your whole life. I've got a a close friend who was one of the very first cast members when they opened Walt Disney World, one of the first 30. Uh, And she says that at that time, Roy Disney was still personally involved and picked those 30 cast members. And she actually got to ask him a question and, and sit down with him. And she asked for career advice. And he said, well, young lady, no matter what they offer you, Never get naked on film. And I thought that was, you know, that's good for Roy Disney. Um, what was the mentoring like on set for you as, as a Mouseketeer in the late, uh, late 80s, early 90s? Were the, there was school on set, I would assume? And did, you know, did they take care of you or were you all running wild? What was it like? <laughs> I would say it would, in the beginning, it was a little bit of both. We- okay. All right. That's honest. <laughs> of running wild only because, you know, when, when I think of, of back about when, like how old everyone was at the time who were responsible for us, they were younger than how, than how old I am now. And I think about being, you know, in those twenties and thirties, having to manage a bunch you know, of 10 year olds, a bunch of tweens, you know, who yeah. are just, and there's no, there's no, we don't have beepers. We don't have tracking devices. We don't have cell phones. You know, there's no, cameras everywhere where they can go find us in security if something happens you know um there was a lot of trust that we wouldn't steal a golf cart and you know go go ride the, the great movie ride eighty thousand times instead of you know go to our rehearsal so what was a um, typical day like there like what time did you roll in and how long were you on set so you know i was just talking to my dad about this because sometimes the days of the week i, I would it changed every year but a typical day that I remember, let's just say that um, one season at least, we worked from Wednesday through Sunday or Tuesday through Saturday, something like that. And it's probably because you could get more audience members into, into our, our audience sections of recording the show on weekends when the parks were more full and they could pull more audience members from the park. Um, we also worked more towards the summertime again, probably for that same reason, but, but I also remember that because of that, I was usually in school almost all year round because you were legally required to be tutored while on the set of your job, if you're a minor. And so that was very interesting to have so much schooling through the years. Uh, but part of my work day would be like nine to noon, or 9.30 to 12.30, something like that, we would be in school. And on a typical day, if everything was balanced, you would bank your three hours of school. And we call it banking because I could be in school for a whole day. My whole workday could be banking of eight hours 
of school because they're going to have to take me out on Saturday to do a video shoot where I don't have time to go to school because we're starting at 5 a.m. and we're going to go forever. So, you know, you bank your hours and legally on the set, you need three hours per workday. I believe that's in general how it was. And so I start school in the morning, you have lunch, and then you have a printed out itinerary um, each week. You would have your daily schedule. And so partially you're responsible to get where you need to get, but also we were children. And so we had really the first line of defense mentor was our stage managers. Uh, the, The men and women who would pick us up from one location and walk us to the next location. And so we, they'd walk us to a dance rehearsal or they'd walk us to a vocal recording or rehearsal. We'd go into production to record the song. We'd go onto the stage to do blocking. We'd go into wardrobe for costume fittings. Or if it's a recording day, like a taping day, all of that stuff's been done either the week before or you know earlier in the week. And we would show up to hair and makeup. All of our stuff would be laid out in our dressing room. We'd put everything on. We'd go to hair and makeup. They'd fix us all up. And then we'd we'd go do the scene, you know? And usually if you weren't doing the scene, uh, if you'd banked all your hours, you could kind of hang around and watch or maybe you're in another rehearsal. But a lot of the times we weren't seeing what everyone else was filming if we weren't in that piece we would be back in school, right? Which was always a bummer after lunch to have to go back to school when everybody else might've been doing a a dance number or something, but that's kind of how it was. Um, But as far as mentoring, our stage managers were the first people who would say, how's it going? How are you doing today? How are you feeling? You know, and and we, they would see us, you know, just kind of in our transitional times. And um, they'd see us when we were freaking out and see us when we're tired or when we're excited. And they'd, be the ones to scold us about, listen, I told you five minutes ago, we got to go. You know, they were very involved as babysitters, as well as their actual job of, you know, managing a stage and making sure the cameras are on and off at the right times. But every adult we worked with basically was a mentor. We were taught a lot about production on the set, which is why I think I'm still in love with production. Um, If you see me at a concert, I'm usually not running Like I just went to a new kids concert and I wasn't one of my friends running to the stage when they got closer to us. I was hanging back and watching all the production. I just love how things are created and how the aesthetic is made. And it's because the cameraman on the new Mickey Mouse Club would say here, left hand is zoom, right hand is where you turn this way to do this. You can tilt up or down, see how it moves up and down, look through the lens. And then the mic guys would say, okay, this is how we make the incision to put your lapel mic through. We use this spray to clean the mics. The hair and makeup ladies, you're literally, you're literally watching them create your face and tell you why they're not putting too much eyeshadow on you or why we're going to put lip liner on. And the wardrobe ladies, they're talking about how they tailor everything for you. And what if we take it in here? You start learning how people do their job because you're literally witnessing it because you're the one they're having to do the job too. Right. Um, So I was constantly learning and really we tackled as Mouseketeers, as the talent, we tackled almost every avenue of production, including lip syncing and overdubbing, you know, all the media interview skills, you know, I, I, we did an album a little bit later in the show and we toured international internationally with that album. So we were doing talk shows in Canada and we were performing in USO tours like Scotland and Iceland. And um, there was almost nothing as far as a talent 
that we didn't touch as far as making that production happen. And I think that was a huge deal for me to know so much about the business at such a young age and fall in love with it at that point. It's like going to school and getting paid for it. Oh yeah. And I, and I'm super grateful because I would have never learned as much, even if I had, let's say done another show or maybe been on a movie or done an album that would have been almost like just more of a snapshot of the, of a piece of the puzzle versus really the broad spectrum of what I got to experience and the longevity of, of the show. I was there for almost seven years from the pilot through, I mean, I was there, like we were talking about fifth into sixth grade. I finished the show the last season and then I graduated from high school right after. And you know, when you're that age, your, your brain is like a sponge, right? You soak up things, anything that's happening around you, whatever it is. So you did walk out of there with an incredible bank of knowledge. Absolutely. We, we, and, and that is why I, I know we haven't segued yet to this, but that's why I'm an executive now at PCG artist development, because I had not run into anything similar to how much information was available to young talent since the Mickey Mouse club right. until I started working and, and, and learning more from PCG artist development. And I thought, okay, this is something I can get behind because I want to be that type of mentor. I would want people having my back as a, as a parent or a talent who have been in the business at the time that my kid is now trying to figure out hormones and homework and discipline. And how can I get through this? And do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Or even now people like me who want to give back and are, and and want to use really the trials and the tribulations and the successes and the failures that I've gone through in the business to help other people maybe have an easier time of it, or at least feel like they're not alone in their feelings. So I'm, I was, I super fell in love with, um, I guess the job that I have now based on how much, um, I, I also gathered from the Mickey Mouse Club and what I see this job uh, has the potential to provide to clients. So yeah, there, there's a segue, but yeah, that Mickey Mouse Club informed me on the job I have today for sure. Makes sense. Jennifer McGill, our guest today, former Mouseketeer, I guess always a Mouseketeer, yeah. and now also an artist development uh, uh, talent coach for uh, entertainers from all over the world through PCG Artist Development. Um, there were other folks on that show that did okay for themselves from a career standpoint. Um, so now's the chance for you to, to drop some names of the other kids that you played with all through school. Sure. Well, first who came around was Bobby Russell, then we had J.C. Chazay, Tony Luca, Rona Bennett, who is now in En Vogue. And then the, we call them the, the new batch was, uh, in no particular order, Ryan Gosling, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and Nikki Deloach, who is a Hallmark queen these days. Um, Wow. All so diversely talented. Every single one of those men and women are exceptional and they were exceptional even then. And I, and I was in love with all of them even back then for, you know, <laughs> they were just magical. Every, you know, I, I, I kind of loved all of us. We were so magical. And uh, there was definitely like a grandma season for me where I do all the, the magazine clippings, you know, for everybody. I, back when, um, I know there's a commercial that jokes about this being an, an old person thing now, but I used to print out things from the internet like, and put them in a binder. <laughs> I love it. 
you know um print so, my email yeah like i was a very proud sister you know of of when everybody you know and, and, and the joke is that i would be like yeah touch me and go be famous because there's all these other people that i would meet randomly like nicole scherzinger we were in a summer stock together huh. you know and well. like i said with katie katie hudson back in the day like when I was just speaking with her about her career and like these people just start everywhere. They, everybody just started getting famous. And I was like, wow, look at all, look at them go. It was a revolution, you know? Um, but yeah. So your hormones uh, have to be kicking in, in, you know, overdrive and you're 14 years old, 15 years old. You're hanging out with Justin Timberlake, right? So. Oh yeah. I mean, he was, he is about four years younger than me. So he's about the age of my, of my brother, Justin. Um, <laughs> And actually, he and I, the last season, um, we were like little little convo friends. We would get out of schoolwork by going into the book room and just talking. And I would pretend that I was working on my um, computer skills, my keyboarding, and he would pretend to read a book. Um, and I remember we had this, you know, cute little friendship, but it wasn't, you know, I mean. I, well, at I, that I, age, I guess four years is a really big deal, right? 17 to 13. It was a big difference. Um, but yeah, like I definitely, I mean, well, and Ryan Gosling like crushed on all the ladies and, you know, I'm sure he's fine with me saying that he crushed on all of us. He would just make the rounds, you know, and try to see like who would give him a kiss. It was very adorable. <laughs> now, now I'm kind of sad I didn't take him up on it, but it was a little awkward. Like he, he what are was you gonna do? younger than me and shorter. Like everyone was so little, you know, and I was already five, seven. You know, when I was um, in ninth or 10th grade, I had already had the big growth spurt. And, you know, I was an Amazonian, really. You can see the pictures where I'm literally like towering over Justin Timberlake, like, oh, look how little, you know, we, they were so little, the, the newest group for, for the most part, they, they were very, they were very little. And, and that was what I think I marveled about was I was like, wow, there's such a difference, you know, who they're bringing in. It's almost like they really are preparing for this show to go on and on um, based right. on how, how young everybody was. But the, the catch is all of those young ones had to be at the playing level that we already were at, having been boot camped all those years on the show. And so all of them entered way better at their job than I was when I started that show in 1989. Like there would have been no comparison if you stood up me and Brittany next to each other and we're like, okay, go do the dances and go sing things. Like she was, she was exceptional. You know, I, I call her a soldier um, because she was one of the most girl next door, no big deal. Kind of like how I would just come off the stage and just leave it on, you know, I'll leave it, leave the stage bloody, but go home and just be a normal kid. But yeah, that's what made them all very magical uh, to me. And that's what made the show magical was that we were all so diverse and all of our talents really worked well together. And there was something for everybody. Every fan had someone that they could look up to and see themselves in, in some way or another. And uh, because it was a variety show, we did have to be good at a lot of different things. Well, and sure. it kept us on shows for sure. I have a friend that was on a, a big network TV show in the seventies. Um, and he said that he didn't realize none of the cast members sort of realized the scope of what that meant until they went out. I think it was in the second season to do a charity softball game somewhere in the Midwest. And then they realized, my God, this is a big damn deal. 
Uh, and, you know, there were thousands of people that came out to the softball game and all that. I wonder if there was a moment like that for you where you kind of realized once you got out of the studio that my whole world has changed and I'm part of something really special. I think it was Cleveland. And if, if a fan is watching this broadcast, they'll be like, yep, Cleveland. Um, there was a mall in Cleveland. I think that was the debut of the soloists from the MMC album, uh, kind of starting our concert tour. And we were in a mall that had the floor level and two balconies. And when we went out there to start our show, everything was filled. And we were like, what? And, and just everybody yelling and screaming. And fans talk about it to this day. Oh my gosh, I was, at, I was, at, I was in Cleveland. I was in Cleveland. You know, and I think that was the moment that that's the first time I remember feeling like a rock star outside of the set. Right. Um, I was probably, I, it might've been the summer after sophomore year. So we're talking, I'm maybe 15, almost 16 years old. And I was just like, uh, all right. Okay. So people know who I am and they're waving and they're sending me roses and teddy bears and they're waiting in line to talk to me about my song. Um, you know, and that's where I started also understanding that what I do and what I represent a helps people get through hard times, you know, the particular message and messaging and, and the, and the music I would sing and what I represented for many fans was comfort and, um, sisterhood and B I felt that it was starting to become kind of a ministry. You know, I felt that this was appropriate for me. This was part of my destiny to be that type of influence. Um, and that is a lot, like you've said, Burke in the beginning, that's a lot to understand at such a young age right. that that makes sense for me and that that feels right. Um, we always want what we don't have. And I was never the haughty patati. And I, I know that everybody goes through phases where they try to like create a life that maybe isn't for them. And it never worked out. I always went back to, no, no, this feels right. This, this nurturing and encouragement and educational, uh, inspirational type of mentor, that is what I'm meant to be. And all the rest of it is, is a waste of time. It's fine. It'll work out. All that stuff is, no, is not my calling. Um, because I saw a lot of us go on to be more of a hottie patati type, right? And kind of win the world over and, and with different talents. And, and that just wasn't my destiny. And I'm really thankful that I had sort of those seeds planted uh, when I was about 15, 16 of where my, my particular power lies in uh, influencing for the better, for the, for the betterment and for the, the spreading of love throughout the world, <laughs> all the rainbows and glitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, talk to me a little bit about that, though, because you you just touched on the fact that some of these, a lot of these folks went on to have incredible, uh, very public facing adult careers. And maybe it wasn't the way you would have wanted it to be done. You know, Christina Aguilera, for example, you know, very sort of sensual, sexy in her 20s. You know, not very, following Roy Disney's advice, apparently, like just clearly not did not listen to Mr. Disney. Alan. Um, you know, Brittany, much the same, uh, you know, the guys, they, they all went on. There must have been a time for you, and maybe you're still dealing with it now, where you're going, okay, great for them, bully you, why not me? 
Yes. So thankfully I'm not dealing with it anymore, but it is very much a talking point when I go out and I do speaking engagements and I, I try to connect with people on identity crisis. And I absolutely had one because like we've been speaking about, I knew professionally my destiny pretty early. I didn't know much about living a life. I didn't really know how to separate work and living and being a human with other goals because I, I really am a workaholic. And I, all I wanted to do in the beginning was kind of be Whitney Houston and go be a recording artist and go tour, tour the world and sing. And, and, and just like in the pageant days, I wanted to do it for the singing. And all of that other exterior work was not for me. It, it never seemed to be the right boxes being checked for the gatekeepers of the recording industry. I had my uh, time with a, a few record labels and a manager. And, you know, I feel like at every turn it was, um, can you lose umpteen more pounds? Or can we fix this? Can we change that? And it came to the point where my health was was starting to be bad or worse. And in what I, way? Well, like I, I started like my body, I was changing my body so much. I was starving myself or going on such fad diets that my my body wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, like my energy levels and just you know, being a young lady and, and growing up and changing, like things weren't working right. Yeah. And I also with, if, if you want to, you know, kind of bring in the mental health hot button, you know, vocabulary, I was suffering greatly from uh, body dysmorphia because I remember looking in the mirror, I was in this uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn basement apartment, kind of, kind of killing it. Like, I was here and I was living my life and I was trying to do the work and working with Capitol records and my manager, I would, I looked in the mirror and I was wearing clothes that were tinier than I had ever worn before. And I was on the phone with my manager and I said, I got down to a size eight and I'm five, seven and a size eight looks pretty skinny on me. Sure. And goes in the same breath. He says, that's great. Can you get down to a size seven? And I just felt so defeated. Like it didn't even, there wasn't even a moment of, let me look at, at what that looks like on you. He wasn't looking at me. There was no digital anything, right? I wasn't FaceTiming this guy. And then another time when I had gotten curvier, a, a year or two later, I went to visit him in LA when things were winding down. And he sat me down and said, okay, based on what you look like, this is not verbatim, but basic, well, this part of it is, but based on what you look like, do you want to be a demo singer or do you want to be Celine Dion? And it was just rejection at every step based on what I looked like when I was singing relative circles around other subjects that were being brought up. Um, and I had, I just wanted to sing. So for me, it forced me into a place of bitterness and jealousy sure. because I you know I can do the stuff that other people could do. I want to be my own artist. You know, I missed the day. I missed the Alanis Morissette season and I was too late for the Adele season, right? Somewhere in the middle was where the bubblegum pop movement was happening right when I was coming out of college and trying to do this 
this dream. So yes, I, I spent decades having to deal with, you know, from the, from the new Mickey Mouse Club and forward, starting to deal with seeds that have been planted that I might not be able to do the work that I love based on the way that I look. And so, yes, I had to fight back sometimes not really kind of bringing a needle to a sword fight, if you will. I didn't really understand what I was dealing with and the, the power of those, of those uh, opinions of other people and how much I valued them over my own self-worth, you know, and mom can only say so much, right? When you hear it from other people, sometimes that rings more true than what your mother knows to be true and the special power and the talent and the destiny that I had. Um, we were all frustrated, but it, it didn't change the fact that I, I, you know, I had what I had to give. It's just that I had, I had the rebellious time of trying to fit into the, the mold that other people created, that, that other formulas had proved as successful in the record industry, but they, they just weren't my molds. I, I really wasn't supposed to fit in one. And so I had to come to that point where both for physical and mental health reasons, I couldn't uh, punish myself anymore and try to be what people wanted me to be. I had to go find my own way. And, and I really found it through a lot more live show experience. You know, I started touring the world again in different like cover bands and uh, tribute artist bands. And I did a cruise ship job. And I remember thinking, of course, there's one perspective that says, well, gosh, that all sounds like small potatoes based on, you know, where you came from. Um, but I never felt that way. Every job was so much fun. And I, I steadied myself to learn with every job that I did. And I believe that's why I teach what I teach now, as far as such a broad spectrum of live performance and presentation, including virtual concerts, et cetera, because I really allowed myself to branch out and learn and not overjudge myself. But coming back to the whole um, why not me thing, there was, there was a, I call it the curse of fame. And I, I felt that I was under that for a long time. And people would come up to me thinking they were complimenting me. So this is a, a blanket statement that if anyone has ever said this to me, I didn't take offense. It would be as if someone goes, well, you're so great. Why aren't you married? It's supposed to be a compliment. But it makes that person say, well, gosh, if I'm so great, what's wrong with me? You know, if they want to be married. And at that time, I wanted to be famous. And so when someone came to me and said, you know, gosh, you're so talented. Why aren't you famous? Wow, Brittany's doing all the things and Christina and Ryan and everybody and Justin, you know, why aren't you out there doing the things? And I'm like, it's not because I haven't been trying. And I think that everybody wanted it for me more than I wanted it. Sure. So I just had to let that go. And I even on even this weekend, someone was was calling me about a, a project and they said, gosh, you know, you, your voice is so, is so special. Haven't you ever wanted to go be a recording artist and go make, make a thing and go pitch yourself to blah, blah, blah. And I said, Hey, you know, I've, I've really, I've really let that go. It, it doesn't seem to be what, what God wants me to do. It doesn't seem to be my destiny. I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. I can still love my voice and use my voice and not be world famous. <laughs> You know, and, and I just, I want to encourage a lot of the career kids out there that it's not all or nothing. You can have a delightful career that you love that doesn't torture you and that doesn't right. suck the life out of you and your family 
and your team and, and still be brilliant at what you do. And so I've just been, I've, I've made peace with the fact that I can be brilliant with what I do, but not everybody has to know about it. And that's okay. <laughs> well, I think it's probably more than okay because uh, there are a lot of really miserable, really famous people. And there are a lot of people who are fantastic singers and musicians who make a great living and they don't have to deal with the fame thing. If you're chasing fame, probably not the right thing to be chasing. Um, well, and fame doesn't stick. You know, it's not that it's not like, it's just like a Broadway show. Yeah, I got to the Broadway show. When is it going to close? I'm always anxious about when it's going to close. Sure. And there's time when someone's going to say, thank, great job for winning the Grammy. When are you going to win your next one? It's the same thing if someone says, congratulations on getting married. When are you having children? Congratulations <laughs> yeah. on your son. When are you having another one? When are you going back to work? If we rely on other people and what they want for us and people pleasing to other people's expectations, it will be an endless cycle of anxiety with the fame department or anything else in anybody else's life. And so when I had those revelations, that's where I made peace with all of that and said, you know what? I wouldn't trade places with so-and-so based yes. on what they have to deal with. I wouldn't trade places. I like who I am. So I need to okay. love who I am. So that's how I try to encourage other people. You know, I'm like, look, if you want to go for that, it's a great dream. And I would encourage anyone to go through it healthily from the inside out in a holistic way. And it's possible. It's very possible. But it's, it, if, you, if you don't feel it's a calling, then it shouldn't be for you because it is a big, big sacrifice. And if the fame thing is the driver, that's probably not what should be the driver anyway. Seems like right. you're okay though. Seems like you came through this relatively unscathed. Yes. Well, I'm a lot wiser and stronger now. So I, I am grateful for the path, even though I'm glad that part's behind me. <laughs> and for what it's worth, I think the people that wanted you in the size seven got it all wrong. You look great to me, Jennifer. <laughs> Thank you. So you release music now in, in the contemporary Christian world. You know, you've, you've got all these years of experience, but I, I want to spend the last couple of moments we have together talking about how you train other um, uh, singers, other performers to sort of, I guess, give them the very best shot they can have in, in pursuing their dream of a career in, in entertainment. So um, maybe there's a mom or dad who's watching now who says, oh, little Johnny really wants to do this. Or maybe it's a, a grown adult, like my friend Kate that I sent to you guys, who was in her 30s, but has this incredible gift. What is it specifically that you and PCG do? And, and how do people sort of come to you and audition to, to even get in that program? How does that work? So PCG Artist Development, we really look for the 1%. And there, there are so many people who are hungry for fame or might have a great raw talent, but um, short attention span, or uh, you know, the, the stars don't align to have the, the family support or the financial support, or they have eight dreams instead of the one. I mean, there's so many reasons why they're not in the 1%, but we're, right. look, we're looking for an artist who has that raw talent, who has that special gift, is ready to work hard, is ready to put both that financial and family and you know sacrificial support behind their dream to really focus because when we start moving with an artist we move with that artist it's now or never let's get it going let's one two three four we want the momentum to start and and that means everybody has to be on board with okay we're really ready to commit our time um and so that's the overall right we're looking for not just raw talent 
but the commitment and the discipline or the willingness to learn and get better at the parts of their career characteristics that might need a little help. For instance, I'm an organized creative, but as we know, most artists are not as organized maybe as I am. Um, creativity can be an overwhelming gift. Um, we can help manage that time-wise and goal-wise because we bring in teams where you have a songwriter to help you finalize a song idea, let's say. Let's say you've never written before in your life. We have basic songwriting instructors that can help get you into the place of, okay, this is how we would help you start building your song. We encourage everybody to be their own storyteller. We don't want to put words in people's mouth, right? But we want, but they need some of that professionalism and that, that guidance to get them into building a song, not just because I want to have a song baby, but I want to have a money-making song baby. I want something that someone else is going to want to hear so I can get my message out there to the world because we have to bring the business into the creativity. We have to bring the organized into the creativity, right? Um, if you're looking for vocal enhancements or, you know, dance moves or live presentation, you know, I'm one of our vocal coaches. I'm one of our live performance coaches. Um, also, you know, virtual training as well. Um, we get you out there. And the goal for me is uh, when it comes to live presentation, I'm not trying to put moves into your body that don't make sense. It's about how do you naturally move and groove? And then how much movement are you actually looking to be in your artistry, right? So it is scientific. It's the science of artist development. That's what we call it. It's because we get in there and we experiment with you and we make sure that we're creating the best you versus just some carbon copy of somebody else. We already have a Taylor Swift. We already have a Brian McKnight or a whoever, right? Alicia Keys. Uh, so we don't, we don't need anybody uh, that's like them. We need you. We need you in the best form of you that there is. Um, in vocal classes, I talk about the mechanics always have to come first. And that's all of the, you know, nerdy, tedious, you got to drill it till it makes sense, muscle memory disciplinary technique that a lot of people don't want to focus on, but it is necessary. You would not believe how many times consonants and vowels get in our way of aerodynamically producing sound. And I am the nerd that helps people figure it out syllable by syllable, and I love it, right? That translates into, okay, now it's time to record a song. We have to get in there and make sure the song hits right in the studio. We have to vocal comp it. All of this is, it, the artist is part of all of this. But then there's a whole other side of then marketing and promotion. Once you get your product together and you're in love with your song, you're in love with your video, you have your photo shoot. Now we have to make sure through the PCG digital side of what we do, your branding is correct. What are your ad spend budgets so that we can get it out to the world, right? We got to make sure that your apple pie gets to Costco for sampling versus just keeping it in this little corner, right? So there's all this way that we have to educate our clients because even though we as providers are going to help provide those sessions and services for our artists, they have to take ownership over building their branding, over getting things uh, done on time, uh, getting back to people, itineraries, calendars, invoicing, you know, they have to be able to keep track and do those numbers. And that the numbers and the budgeting is the stuff that I never would have wanted to deal with. The business side was always something that was sketchy for me. But I want uh, our artists to not be afraid of that and to understand that there is value in building a team. You can't go it alone. You can. But again, that's kind of like putting your apple pie on your windowsill and hoping the world smells it. Sure. You know, 
And so this is a way that I have seen that we help people become as successful as possible while making sure their insides are as healthy as their outsides. And then making sure that the world gets to experience them through the power of social media and digital marketing and promotions, which is relatively new. And we wish that that weren't the game. Hear us now. PCG wishes that it weren't the game, that it's all about your numbers and your social media stats. Um, But just like how I wish it hadn't been about my body image back in the day, there's always a hurdle that we have to jump over and we have to learn, okay, is this something we're going to embrace or are we going to find another career path, you know? And right now, record industry standard is all about this digital media and marketing and promotions. And so it's something that we help educate our clients so that it's not so scary. So we take you from the inside all the way to the top. I mean, we have sessions and services for everything, including nutrition and therapy, media, PR, um, And that's why I'm in love with this company, because if you are that 1% and you're ready, we can get you to the best version of you year after year, if you're ready. Set them up for the best possibility of success. All right. If if people want to track you down um, to talk to you about the talent development thing, which is so cool because it really has come full circle from all that stuff you learned as a kid on the Mickey Mouse Club. And now, you know, you're you're helping other people. So I love that story. If they want to find you guys online, is it uh, pgcartistdevelopment.com? Is that right? Yeah, it's PCG. I'm so sorry, PCG, artistdevelopment.com. It stands for Premier Career Guidance. So the C's in the middle. And it's pcgartistdevelopment.com. And there should be a pop-up window where if you would like to know more information or chat with somebody, uh, they will get back to you. So yes, we are ready, ready to work. Absolutely. Jennifer McGill at jennifermcgill.com. Thanks for spending time with us and uh, best of luck to you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been our pleasure to have you listening and watching today. The Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by our friends at speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a platform speaker, if you're a meeting planner, Find one another at speakermatch.com. Thank you, Headline Books and their Zoom into Books platform. We appreciate you so much. And wherever you are, whatever you do, thank you for being here today. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.